welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. All right, good morning, everybody. If you will turn your Bibles to Matthew 14 and find verse 22, that's where we're going to start. Um, And so just to clear up a few things, yes, the wrong bald guy is standing behind the pulpit. It is not at your imagination. I didn't even think Pastor was going to be here today. He uh, called me on Friday and said, I don't think I can preach on Sunday. Do you think you can help me out? I'm like, sure. So for those of you that don't know me, and I look out on the crowd, and there's a few faces I don't recognize. My name is Keith Baird. I've been attending this church for, oh, about 17 years, I guess. And the reason you don't know me is because I'm one of those weird 9 o'clock people. I'm an early riser, so I come to the 9 o'clock service, and I'm home relaxing by the time you guys start at 11. So, but but if he just didn't pick some guy off the street to come and talk. Um, secondly, um, I, I have done the, I've had the privilege to preach uh, several times over the course of, uh, well, those 15 years. I, I told them this morning that uh, the video made me realize one thing, that uh, I'm getting old, either I'm getting older or I just been here forever because when the when the when, when the pictures went to color and they started showing the past pastor, past pastors, I've heard every one of them preach. Fernando's been going here a little longer than me, but that's about it. <laughs> I think you got here a couple years before I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, uh, I don't. I uh, I enjoy uh, occasionally uh, giving a message, so I'm always happy to help pastor out when uh, when he asks. Now, I will tell you this, whether you like or dislike the message by the time I get done, there will be one thing you do like. I put a stopwatch on myself this morning. You're going to be out of here in 30 minutes. <laughs> and that is, normally the, that is normally the case with me unless I get uh, especially uh, get down a rabbit trail too much and have to get back to my notes. 30 minutes is about my limit. I do like to hear myself talk. But uh, I try to contain myself a little bit when I'm uh, in front of the congregation. So, uh, Matthew 14, starting in verse 22. I made mention this morning to the, to the 9 o'clock that uh, I brought the wrong Bible. And I only brought the wrong Bible because this is the one I read in the morning when I can go like this. Because it's really, really little print. So if I stumble over the verse when I'm reading it, it's just because I can't see it. I should have brought my large print Bible. So the word of the Lord says this, starting in uh, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way uh, from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on, on you to, the wa- uh, to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat. And walked on the water and came to Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So, I also told them at 9 o'clock this morning, in my message here, you are going to hear uh, <clears throat> several passages of, of, of a couple of commentaries uh, that were written in the late 1700s. So, the language is a little different than what you hear now, but if you try to ignore the these and the thous and, and, and whatnot, that, uh, how they were wrote back then, and listen to the, the thought uh, behind the commentators, you'll realize, and I will go into it a little more in the message, you'll realize that the same thing that they were, same battles that the Christians were fighting back then in the late 1700s uh, is really no different than today. We are fighting the same struggles uh, now as back then. So we just read the story of Peter walking on the water at Jesus' invitation. So the disciples were in this boat on a stormy sea. Not long after Jesus had performed the miracle of feeding the 5,000 plus people and collecting those 12 baskets of leftovers. Their faith, or Peter's for that matter, should have not been only strong, but fresh in their minds. Yet with this storm, their fear was great. And when their eyes showed them Jesus walking on the water, they thought they saw a ghost. That's in verse 26. But in their hearts, they should have seen the Son of God. They should have seen Jesus. However, Jesus, all-knowing as always, says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now Jesus make, broke these, this statement up into two, and we can keep in mind that he says, Take heart and be not afraid. And wouldn't it be so much easier for us if we could just remember this day to day? Take heart and don't be afraid. He is in control of everything. He already knows the problems you're going through. If we could just focus on him, we'd be a lot better off. But we see that Peter does an impulsive thing. And now, Peter's life is full of impulsive statements and actions. So we know from our Bible reading uh, that Peter, not demanded directly of Christ, but through John, that Christ informed them of who the traitor was that was going to betray Jesus. We know Peter also acted on impulse when the people came to arrest Jesus. He cut off the ear of one of those men. Uh, we also know that when Jesus was telling his disciples that when he was when he they came to take him, they would all flee him. And and it doesn't say this exactly like that in the Bible. I can imagine Peter jumping up and going, "No, Lord, I'll go ahead and die with you." At which point Jesus delivers that line that will haunt Peter in a little bit when he tells him, "No, you're going to deny me three times." Uh, so back to the story. So in verse 28, they cry by crying out to Jesus, "Lord, if it is you, come to me. Uh, come, to, come to me on the water." Let's examine that statement of by Peter. He said he first, he first starts out with the word "Lord." It's like a positive statement. It comes from the heart because he knows who he sees. Then Jesus, well, he gives Jesus the recognition he deserves. But he follows that with a what I'm going to call like a lack of faith, faith question or something that comes from his mind, not his heart. He uses if, if it is you. He's hedging. 
He said to his best. First he recognizes Jesus as Lord, but then he immediately says, well, I'm not so sure. So this is where a few, a couple of those commentaries come in mind. And, and a couple of, both of the two that I read, they both had the same general idea. So this statement that Peter has made could become, could come from two things. It could, it could have been a genuine confusion on Peter and the disciples' part that, that this ghost was an image meant to fool the disciples uh, and it came from an untrustworthy spirit. They'd seen Christ banish any number of spirits and demons for people, and with the storm, they were all very afraid. Or it could absolutely have been a lack of faith in what their eyes were telling them. Well, they had been with Christ for a while and see him do many miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, for example, just before they got on a boat. As a whole, they had still not accepted Christ for who he was. That actual conversion of the disciples was still a little ways off. Well, I'll ask you, how often do we hudge our bets like this when we have a decision? How often, big or small, it doesn't matter, how often do we go to God and say, Lord, for example, I got a chance at this new job. Should I go get it? But how often when we ask to get that of God, have we already made up in our mind a plan to go ahead and do it anyway? Or to not do it? Either way. But, but we, take the, we take it to God, but we already know, because we don't know if God's going to take his time. He works in ways that we don't understand, which is true. And, and you know, I, I'm a busy guy. God's a busy guy. I can work it out on my own. And, and look, I'm going to just say, Pastor may have to correct this later. If that's what you want to do, if you want to make decisions on your own, go ahead and make them on your own. It's totally up to you. But if, if you take that request to God, wait. Wait on his answer. Now, he's going to bring you that answer in one way or another. It may come in an answer to prayer when you're, when you're, when you're praying. You might get a thought in your head. You might get a confirmation about what you do. It might come from the multitude of counselors that the Bible says you ought to use in consultation with your pastor, a Christian friend. You might get the answer from God from one of those sources. What My point here is, if you're going to take it to God, wait on his answer. Wait as long as it takes to get it. Don't get in a hurry. Be patient. He is going to get to you. And you'll be better off when you wait on him. So back to the story again. So Peter steps out of the boat in verse 29. And what a step of faith this was. Because we all know that were we to step into the water, being off a pier, off a boat, on the edge of a lake, we'd immediately stick in the water. But the, uh, Peter, doing what no man was able to do, and instead of looking at the Savior of man who gives him this remarkable gift, he starts looking around at the rolling waves, feels the wind on his face, the water splashing on him. And, what, and he loses that focus at a critical moment in his life when his eyes should be on Jesus and that straight path ahead. We see Peter experiencing, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, a heart versus a mind uh, uh, thought or situation. Peter is overthinking the situation instead of staying on the path. So... In that, in that uh, vein, Matthew 7, 13, Enter by this narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So I'm going to read you a couple of, uh, 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 one of these uh, commentaries. This is from a gentleman named Matthew Henry. Uh, he was like 17, written 1708, 1710, somewhere in there. Christ came to teach us not only what we are to know and believe, but what we are to do. Not only towards God, but toward men. Not only toward those of our congregation, but toward people in general. All of which whom we have to do. We must do that to our neighbor which we ourselves acknowledge to be fit and reasonable. We must in our dealings with men suppose ourselves in the same case and circumstances with those we have to do with and act accordingly. There are but two ways, right and wrong, good and evil, the way to heaven and the way to hell. In the one or other areas of these, all are walking. There is no middle place hereafter. No middle way now. All the children of men are saints or sinners, godly or ungodly. See, concerning the way of sin and sinners, that the gate is wide and stands open. You may go in at this gate with all your lusts about you. It gives no check to appetites or passions. It is a broad way. There are many paths in it. There is choice of sinful ways. There is a large company in this way. But what profit is there in being willing to go to hell with others because they will not go to heaven with us? The way to eternal life is narrow. We are not in heaven as soon as we got through the straight gate. Self must be denied, the body kept under control, and corruptions mortified. Daily temptations must be resisted. Duties must be done. We must watch in all things and walk with care. We must go through much tribulation. And yet this way should invite us all. It leads to life, to present comfort in the favor of God, which is the life of the soul, to eternal bliss. The hope of which at the end of our way should make all the difficulties of the road easy to us. This plain declaration of Christ has been disregarded by many who have taken pains to explain it away. But in all ages, the real disciple of Christ has been looked on as a singular, unfashionable character. And all that have sided with the great number have gone on the broad road to destruction. If we would serve God, we must be firm in our religion. We can often hear of the straight gate and the narrow way and how few there are that find it without being in pain for ourselves or considering whether we are entered on the narrow way and what progress we are making. I'm going to go back up a little bit and say this again. This plain declaration of Christ has been disregarded by many who have taken pains to explain it away. But in all ages, the real disciple of Christ has been looked on as a singular, unfashionable character and all have sided with the greater number. Can anybody here not tell me over the last... Let's say six months. I don't have to go back that far. Where pastor has not said something just exactly like this. There are preachers, pastors, supposed people of God that are trying to soft pedal the gospel. That are trying to make the Bible 
a history book and not the living Word of God. So my point being is this. In the late, early and late 1700s, they were still trying to disprove the book, and today they're still trying to disprove the book. But what is still here? The book is still here. It hasn't faded away. It hasn't gone away. It's still here to, uh, to help us. And it, don't you also find it un... Um, how, did they, how did they phrase it? People look at you as an unfashionable character or a weirdo if you tell them you're a Christian, that you're trying to live a right and moral way. Stick to what the Bible has to tell you and you will be fine. So we find Peter's focus here not, not, uh, wanders not only on sight, but in faith. A problem he's going to have repeatedly as the story of Peter's life continues to unfold until he is fortunate to have a meal with Jesus that forces Peter to look deep into himself to find a depth of faith that he did not know existed, but one that Jesus knew was there, and help bring forth at the most important meal Peter will ever eat. Well, we'll go into that a little bit later at the end of the message. So back to our story once again. Now Peter goes immediately to the thing we cry out most once we get ourselves into trouble. Lord, save me. I don't think I have to expound on that. I think you guys get that. Which Jesus does without hesitation, reaches out and takes Peter's, and then takes Peter's saying, hand saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? They stepped into the boat, and the wind stops, and the rest of the disciples cry out, Truly, you are the Son of God. I'm sorry, i got to go back and expound on that anyway. Jesus, help me! Really? How often do we have to do this? I mean, maybe it's just me. Maybe. I'm hard-headed. I, I, I have a phrase. I didn't use it in this, in this sermon, but I have a phrase. God likes to hit me with big old gigantic two-by-four. Because sometimes that's what it takes to get my attention. I end up in so much trouble. Well, I'm going to go back into that a little bit later, too. Because I don't wait on him. I, or, or even if I don't, I, even if I don't talk to him, I have, I mean, not, don't look, I don't have anything that many memorized, but I've read and I recall a lot of stuff in his words. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what I'm not supposed to do. Yet, I seem to find, I seem to find myself doing the things that I'm not supposed to do anyway. And that does put me in kind of such good company because if you've read your Bible, that's paraphrased exactly what Paul had to say about his own actions when he's trying to follow the Lord and has a problem with it. So why do we do these things? Do we all have this lack of faith? Is it part of our DNA? Or is it just our worldly selves to doubt and to question? Yes and no. For me, it's the one thing since I've been a Christian that I continue to be unable to fully fathom about God, and that thing is free will. Now, I realize why free will is important before salvation, because God does not want us forced to worship or pray to Him, for, have salvation forced on us, but 
Once we make the decision to trust Him from our, from our, with our lives by welcome Christ into our hearts, and here's where, once again, I don't why I don't understand free will. Wouldn't it be much easier the moment I accept Christ for Him to just take that away? Take away the free will, God. I don't need it. I don't want it. I get in too much trouble because I know the two by four is coming. And I don't want it. But as Hugh so eloquently pointed out, he was sitting in behind Gene there. He's doing this while I'm talking. And he's absolutely right. Without that free will, we would just be robots. And God doesn't want that. And here's the reason why. As soon as I find my place in my notes, now that I stop and look away. Uh, but God continues this free will to allow us choices and for him to be able to test and strengthen our faith, God's ability to elevate us to a level of faith that we not don't know the limits of, but through testing and strengthening, that'd be trials, it will astound us when we reach our, our heights of faith and that glorious meeting with our Savior when our work on earth is finished. This from the poor man's Bible commentary on the story. Very short. Many, uh, many very blessed instructions arise out of this short memorial of Christ's grace to his disciples, which we ought, through the Lord's teaching, to gather. The ship tossed with the waves and the winds contrary represent the case of the Church of Christ, I'm sorry, Church of Jesus at large, and the instance of believers in particular, how frequently this conviction was on the masses which followed Christ, and yet how shortly after the sense of it wore off. Everybody get that? Okay, well, since I like to talk, I'm going to explain it a little bit differently. So here's the example. Pastor, he preached a message. And he preached a message on loving your neighbor. And you can't know, you can't love your neighbor unless you meet your neighbor. How many people live somewhere and you don't know people that live on either side of you across the street? I know that's true for me. So, a few of you. Okay. And part of Pastor's message is this because it's his job to strengthen you, and it's his job to get you to follow God's word. He tells you, this week, I want you to go across to that neighbor that you don't know, introduce yourself, engage them in conversation, so now you know them. So that's what he's, that's the first part that he's talking about. Second part, is he, this, the guy, what he's trying to get across is this. In your mind, you're going, yep, 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 yep. I understand that. I got that. Pastor's absolutely right I ought to do that. Because, hey... Sometimes I need, I might need his help. I can't go over and go, oh, hey, I don't lose your name, but I need a ride to town. Yeah, that's what happens. Your, your mind says, I understand, he's, I understand you, Pastor, and I agree. You walk out the doors of the church, and Monday morning rolls around, and what happens? You don't go do it. Either you're not thinking about it anymore because you slept since then, even though you took good notes, I like to take notes. I especially like to take them because he, he gives all those nice blank spaces. You didn't get those because I never get him my message ahead of time to do any of that. 
But, but when he gives them, he, I like to fill out them notes. It keeps me focused. But, and, and I keep them for a while. But you forget or you just decide, eh, it's a good idea, but uh, I'm not really into that. Here's the problem. And it's the same problem Peter had. One is, a, one is if the feeling comes from here, if pastor t- touched you here, or God had pastor touch you here, however you want to word it, you're going to go out and meet that neighbor. If God had pastor touch you here, more likely than not, you're not going to. Now, it's okay to be intelligent. You've you got to be halfway intelligent to read and to understand what he wrote. But that intelligence alone is not going to get you where you need to be in God's eyes. You need Jesus came into your heart to save you. A lot of decisions have to be made with that part, with, with that combination between your heart and your mind. So something to think about. Uh, okay, so what do we were? We learned briefly in Peter's storm that he is impulsive. He he acted without thought to his surroundings and failed to keep his eye on Jesus when things went bad. Um, <clears throat> We can find ourselves in the same position in our rush, rush to help out when we hear of someone's pain. We want to run over and give advice or tell them what to do. Instead, instead we, should be listening, oh, we should be lending comfort and prayer for them. Here's, here's, what I'm, here's what I mean. And it's especially important for Christians. We like to know stuff. right? We like to know what's going on. I'd like to be in the know. I don't know what the, today's word for that would be, but that's about as that's about as cool as I get. We like to be in the know. Somebody will have to tell me what the what the cool phrase is now. Anyway, uh, let's say somebody has a loss or they're hurt. Pastor has. Pastor may say start start the prayer chain and uh, say this person needs prayer. Well, well, we want to know why. What's going on? I need more information. <laughs> no, you don't telling you, you don't. Especially when it comes to members of the congregation, what you need to know is they need prayer. And your desire, while it might be in good faith, your desire to know is irrelevant. The thing you need to do is exactly what was asked for, is to pray. Now, if you know them personally, you have a relationship with them, and you want to go visit you want to go put a hand on their shoulder? Do just that. Pray with them. Resist the urge to find out what's going on. Because you don't need that to be a comfort to them. You just need to be there for them. <laughs> Peter was needlessly fearful. Jesus had Peter's best interest at heart when he called him out under the water. He knew what was going to transpire and Peter needed to have this experience experience for him to be prepared for God's plan down the road. When we face a crisis in our own lives, whether by our doing, our own doing or outside influence, we need not be fearful. God has full knowledge of this event and our best interests on his mind. Excuse me one second. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. 
but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of faith. Oh, I'm sorry, a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, now we're going to move to, if you want to go turn to John 21, we're going to go and talk about that lunch, dinner, supper that Peter had with Jesus that's going to change Peter's life for the better. So just a little, uh, a little background instead of reading the whole thing. Uh, disciples have been out fishing. This is after Christ has been crucified. Disciples have been out, out fishing all night. They have caught nothing. And these are people who do that for a living. And they have caught nothing. And they're back near the shore. And they're doing whatever fishermen are doing with their nets. I don't know. Repairing them, cleaning them. I don't know what they do. But, but this person shows up on the shore. And the disciples, one of the disciples knows who it is. The rest of the disciples do not. And the guy on the shore says, hey, throw your nets on the other side. Now, obviously, I'm paraphrasing there because Jesus never said, hey. Throw your nets out there. And then I can imagine. So the, the disciples, they're fishermen. They are self-made men. They probably are like, Dude, we've been out here all night. There's no fish to catch. We don't even know who you are. But they do it anyway. And lo and behold, what happens? The nets are so full, they can't even bring them back into the boat. At this point, now remember I said one of the disciples knew who was standing on the shore. That was John. John tells Peter, hey, that's Jesus over there. Peter immediately forgets what he's doing, jumps out of the boat, and goes because he wants to get to Jesus. So that's the preface. So verse, let me get to the light here. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. A little bit of transformation there in Peter's life, isn't there? Let's go into it a little bit. So, in, this, uh, in these verses, Jesus uses two different Greek words for love in, in, the, in three verses. 15 and 16, he uses the word uh, agape. I may have pronounced that wrong. Which means to love, be loved, in a social or moral sense. And in verse 17, he uses the word phileo, which means in friendship, have an affection for, as a matter of principle or duty. So, let's see, in verse... Oh, I shouldn't have closed my Bible, because I missed this part on the... You're going to get something the 9 o'clock didn't get. Um, you may not want it, but you're getting it anyway. Uh... 
Simon, or here, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And the commentary that I was reading said, collectively, do you love me more collectively than the rest of the disciples? Is what Jesus was actually asking Peter. <clears throat> so, here's, there's, you got two paragraphs from two different Bible commentaries. And they say basically the same thing, they just word it a little differently. Everyone has felt that the threefold question of Christ to Peter alluded to the threefold betrayal. There lay in the question a mild rebuke so exquisitely given that it would not sting but soften the heart. It was also it was a trial also. It was so spoken as to try whether the apostle had the same boastful spirit. Would he now exalt himself? put himself forward as the first? Was the element of self-conceit still mingled with his impulsive affection? We see in the reply how the apostle has changed. He accepted the reproof without a word of self-justification. He answered true to the testing power of the words on his heart. He did not even trust his own knowledge of his love, but appealed from himself to Christ, Thou knowest, thou only, oh, only thou, Thou knowest, knowest that I love thee. From the poor man's commentary, it says this. I pray the reader not to overlook in this most interesting conversation of the Lord Jesus with Peter, the chief test Jesus put to him in proof of his sincerity was love. The Lord does not say, Hast thou honored me or obeyed me? Or what proofs can I bring of thy duties towards me? But simply, does thou love me? And although the Lord repeated the question three times, which Peter's conscious heart and his threefold denial interpreted to have been the cause, yet it is not said. No, neither is it at all intimated by the Lord Jesus, as if this was the cause for which the Lord asked him thrice the question. Indeed, I rather think from the well-known and long proved love and grace of Jesus to his people that the Lord rather intended to give Peter the opportunity of thrice repeating the assurances of his love to do away the impression of his thrice denial. The Lord knew from what cause Peter had fallen, and the Lord knew that his whole church must have fallen from the same cause. Did not his all-powerful grace keep up and preserve? It appears, therefore, in my view, one more of those numberless instances we have upon record of the tenderness of Jesus to his people than in those circumstances where they have shown greater weakness, his grace be more than manifested in enabling them to show greater love. Now, I could have told, not told you those were commentaries, and you'd have known that wasn't me talking, right? Not because it's smarter than I, which it is. Well, because the language is a little bit differently. But but did you get all that? I, I mean, they, they, both, the, both the commentators are making the same point. We When we read the, the verses on the surface, we think, I thought for a long time, and I guess maybe it's just me, we think it is Christ hammering at Peter how much he loves him because he denied him three times. When in reality, it's not. It's once again, I mentioned earlier about God uh, elevating our faith. It's Jesus 
making Peter understand the depth of faith he already has, but he just doesn't see it inside himself. Because we know Peter is going to go on to, uh, to, to, to lead the church and to do good things. And, and a man that, that stubbed his toe more often than not through life up until this point, God uses in a great way. So I'm going to leave you with this. Let's call it homework or application. This week, I want you to ask God for clarity on how much that you actually love Jesus. And when he answers you, which he will, ponder that answer as good news. Then keep up the good work that you are doing. And if it's news you don't like, that makes you examine your commitment to God, that's good also. Because hear this, this is important. It means the Holy Spirit is there beside you, urging you to read, to study more, or to perhaps seek some godly advice on whatever God has laid on your heart to change, to be, change, for you to change to be closer to Him. When the storm comes into your life, you will be prepared to tackle it with your eyes on God and not the storm. So let's, I'm going to go back to the Holy Spirit thing, and, and if God shows you something that, you, that He doesn't like about your life, remember, that is a good thing. Even though it's going to hurt, it's a good thing. Because if you're that far outside and the Holy Spirit doesn't, doesn't come and tell, give you an answer, you got big problems. And I don't think anybody wants that. So go home, however you want to do it. Go to prayer, read your Bible, talk to a friend, whatever. Ask that of God. Have Him show you how much that you love Him. How much are you doing the things for Him that He wants you to do? You may be awesome. You may be doing that. That's great. And if it's something simple, if it's something big that he wants you to change, work on it. Get the tools you need, whether it's come to pastor, get some counseling, get some, uh, oh, I'm touching the wrong thing. Get some verses out of the Bible to read that get you on the right path and uh, make those changes in your life and, and, and enjoy God's grace. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.